out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be Hello, and welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, we'll be talking about Dreams in the Witch House, at least the first half of Dreams in the Witch House. This, this story's length is a bit, a bit inconvenient. It, it could have been covered probably in one, one episode, but I think I'm going to do it in two because there's a lot of material here. It's about the same length as Call of Cthulhu, um, and that I think I did over two, maybe even, th I think, two episodes. So we're going to do... Um, Probably two on this really uh, quite amazing tale. Um, this is maybe it's not the most. I mean, I've read it before. I read a lot of other Lovecraft stories, but I read it quite late, or I took it seriously quite late in my kind of rereading of of H.P. Lovecraft in the last uh, few years. Um, at first, I thought it was maybe a little bit. Uh, I, I didn't quite fully understand what to make of the story. And as I kind of came back to read it, I found a lot more going on in this story and I found it to be a lot stronger. I think it's it's not the one people usually talk about. It's it's not like Shadow Over Innsmouth or Shadow of Time or At the Mountains of Madness or even Call of Cthulhu, which a lot of people talk about and meditate on and reflect on. But this one, it doesn't get that same kind of love that I think some of these other Lovecraft stories do. Um, and I don't think that's fair. I think this is in some ways the most interesting and complex and, and fascinating of, and really good of his later stories. Uh, but let me set this up a little bit. Uh, as you probably can tell, we're back to looking at the stories that Lovecraft published under his name. Uh, we have four more to do. Uh, the Dreams in the Witch House, The Thing on the Doorstep, Shadow Out of Time, and Haunter in the Dark. And that will complete uh, all of the stories that Lovecraft published over during his life. I think there's one or two short things from the 20s maybe I missed. I might do a cleanup series to, to kind of go back. Because there are a bunch of like nonfiction essays I might want to consider too. I might go back to do those. But... Um, you know, this is this. We're coming to the end. We still got a lot of revisions to look at after that. So I got about six episodes here where I'll finish up these four stories. Then we'll look at his later revisions, and that will take quite a while. Actually, there's a, there's a lot of revisions he wrote during this time. We're not publishing. He didn't publish too much between 1931 and 1936 or so. Uh, um, of these four tales, I think only this one, Dreams in the Witch House, was published. Um, before 1935, maybe. So, um, yeah, there's all a kind of a stretch where he didn't publish that much under his name, but he was working a lot on revisions. So that's where he got a lot of his income from during that time. So we'll we'll come back and look at those revisions. Um, and there's a lot of various links, so it, it might. Um, I don't know. We'll see how how that goes. A lot of those a lot of those revision stories I haven't ever even read. So I'm kind of looking forward to actually jumping into those stories. Um, so, uh, yeah, anyways, uh, Dreams in the Witch House. Um, I think there's, um, this is one of the best stories that really thinks about science. I mean, he's got kind of, 
I mean, I guess there's stories that are more scientific, like uh, at the Mountains of Madness, the Colorado Space, where you see the scientific method being applied. Um, some of those stories really fit maybe more clearly under the genre of science fiction. In fact, both of those stories were published in science fiction, primarily science fiction magazines. This was published in Weird Tales, but it's very much a, a story of science and new science in a way, like the, the new trends in science. He doesn't explicitly say this is about relativity or this is about quantum mechanics, but there's certainly this feeling that we're, we're it's, it's going parallel to our new understandings about how the world works that, were, that was happening in new science um, in, the, in the, you know, the early part of the 20th century, right? We, I guess we kind of take this stuff for granted now, but at the time it was, you know, that late 19th, early 20th century, it was kind of a transformative figure for period for science. And of course, this inspires Lovecraft's entire worldview in a lot of ways. Uh, his cosmic horror draws from his conception of, of the new discoveries of science breaking down our our, you know, our understanding of what the world is, and that's going to leave us kind of adrift. So I think that's very interesting. I think our, our main character, we don't have a narrator. Like in the three stories we looked at previously that he published under his name, like The Whisper in Darkness, At the Mountains of Madness, and Shadow Over Innsmouth, we have a narrator. Um, and that's some way, you know, Lovecraft often wrote. But I actually appreciate the third person narration we get here. It, it separates us a little bit from uh, our main character, Walter Gil Gilman's like internal thoughts. We see his actions uh, more and we see how he's being kind of pulled. You get this, it allows him to have more of this dreamlike uh, approach to the story. Um, and it gives us insights that we wouldn't have if it was all told in the first person narration. I think this couldn't have been told uh, in quite the same way if it was told from Walter Gilman's point of view because he has spent so much of the time confused and aimless and just sort of um, like bouncing off walls in a way. Um, so I like that approach to the story. I, and something else that really struck me when I was reading this again was this might be our best look at Arkham. It's weird. It's like at the end of his like career as a fiction writer. He's so much associated with this town of Arkham, but we never really see much of Arkham, right? We, you know, we got characters who are based in Arkham, but they're, you know, they're, it's not a character in the story very much. We don't meet many Arkham residents. We meet, you know, we got like in Dunwich Horror, he, someone visits Arkham, right, to go to Miskatonic University, and there's a few chapters set there. And then it's not there. Uh, Whisper in Darkness, our main character is a Miskatonic University professor who, you know, but most of the story is about the letters from Vermont and the trip to Vermont. At the Mountains of Badness, Arkham's totally in the backdrop of that story. Um, so we don't get the people, the Denzians of the town, the, the geography of the town in really any other story that I can think of, um, at least not quite this well. But here it is. I mean, what we, like the popular imagination of Arkham comes from this story, right? Um, the, the island on the Miskatonic, the mysterious island, the, the witch house, of course, and the, the, the people of Arkham, right? It's, you know, the immigrant populations there, their rituals, their beliefs, uh, their, their weird, like the weird holidays they celebrate seemingly only in Arkham. These things are 
all described in this relatively short tale. It's not very long. It's I think it's less than 40 pages, but it's really, really dense and really packed with a lot of great lore about about Arkham. So I like that. Um, as, and again, as much as Lovecraft thinks about witches in a lot of his work, and there's this backdrop of the Salem Witch Trials, even in stories like the case of Charles Dexter Ward, here we, we actually meet a witch who's an active player. Uh, and that could be a story, right? A witch's soul haunts a young man when he lives in the house and he's tormented by it. But Lovecraft isn't content with that. He connects this to, to his broader mythology as many of his, pretty much all his late stories do. Um, maybe Thing on the Doorstep is a little more detached, but the rest really do try to tie their, these stories into the broader mythology he's constructed. So we, we see Azathoth, we see Nyarlathotep, we see uh, uh, the witch cult of, of Arkham um, and, and all that. Uh, it's right under the surface of the story. So this is just a long way of saying I'm really going to, to kind of adore this, this tale. And it's um, much closer to my heart now than it's perhaps ever been. And it, it's, it's one I kind of never paid attention to um, in you know, in my first couple kind of examinations of Lovecraft, I just sort of, you know, maybe I, I, I read it, it didn't, you know, kind of came away from it, maybe a little bit confused. And the endings maybe a bit underwhelming, even though it's very grotesque. It's got that going for it. But um, I don't know. And actually, the more I think about it, I don't know why this story doesn't get a lot more attention, like on par with maybe the Call of Cthulhu as just a, a story that builds up the lore of, of Lovecraft's universe. It, it, it certainly, I think, does it better than the tales we looked at earlier, like Mountains of Madness or Shadow Over Innsmouth or Whisper in Darkness. Um, this does a better job of that, I think. And that's why it might take a couple episodes to, to fully uh, talk about it, even though it is rather short. So anyways, uh, I guess I never told you when it was written. It was written in 1932. It was first published in Weird Tales in July of 1933. Um, his previous story um, that he published in Weird Tales, I think, was Whisper in Darkness. At the Mountains of Madness was published much uh, later. Um, Whisper in Darkness, yeah, appeared in August 1931. So it was two years since he had a major publication in Weird Tales. I don't know if there's any reprints um, between that time. I don't think so. Um, so great so this is the the description in the weird tales the issue a story of mathematics witchcraft and walpurgis night in which the horror creeps and grows in a new tale by the authors of the rats in the walls now the rats in the walls it's it's not surprising why the editors chose to mention that story because rats play a prominent role in this this story we're introduced to uh our, our witches, uh, Keziah Mason's, that's her name, uh, her familiar, who's a rat, like a half rat, a rat thing, essentially a rat, half rat, half human kind of uh, monster. Um, not a cat, not, not, not a crow or something like that, but something really grotesque, right? I, I think that's a wonderful choice for it. So, um, yeah, let's, let's jump into this. Uh, the details of the story. It is a very dense story and there's a lot going on, so I'm, I'm likely going to miss a few 
aspects of it, and I apologize for that. Um, you know, the only way I could maybe hit every point is to do like a line by line analysis, just because it is so so dense. Maybe that's something that people don't like about it. You know, it's if you can trust it with that, the mountains of madness, where it seems not that much happens, but there's it's a really long story. This one, a lot happens and it's very short, right? It's it's. But I think that's something I like about it. it maybe that helps because it's got that third-person narration. It's a, it's a more efficient storytelling style than if we got it all from Walter Gilman's point of view, who spends so much of the story confused and, and weirded out by what's happening to him. It just wouldn't have worked as well. So anyways, our, our main character here is Walter Gilman, and he's an interesting bloke. We, he's, he's a student at Miskatonic University. Um, so we're not, it's not a professor, it's not uh, someone who's in the, the field of folklore or, or geology or he's not the librarian. He's not, he's not really an established member of the community. He's just a student. And he's, he works hard, he studies quite a lot, but he's very much attached to kind of new science, we're told. Um, and this seems to contribute to his like a very a sensitivity right he's he's a great example of what lovecraft talks about like the sensitive person um you know this is something that maybe our narrator in shadowver insmouth has but i don't think our narrator in at the mountains of madness or whisper in darkness have that sensitivity quite like him he's really this neurotic student who you know is curious and I mean, he decides to live in the old witch house, so that that takes some bravery and curiosity. But he's um, he's affected by the things around him, right? So much of the story, in fact, through much of the first half of the story, he's not sure if he's just mentally ill or if something's really happening to him. Um, but after we're introduced to Gilman in the first chapter, we're introduced to Arkham. Um, quote: He was in the changeless, legend-haunted city of Arkham with its clustering gamble roofs that sway and sag over attics where the witches hid for the king's men in the dark olden days of the province. Nor was any spot of the city more steeped in macabre memory than the gambrel room which harbored him. For he was in this house and this room which had likewise harbored old Keziah Mason whose flight from the Salem jail in the last, at the last no one was able to explain. That was in 1692. The jailer had gone mad and babbled of a small white fang furry thing which scuttled out of Keziah's cell, and not even Cotton Mather could explain the curves and angles smeared in the gray stone walls with some red sticky fluid. So right away she's connected to Salem, she's connected to uh, the deep history of Arkham. Um, the Salem Witch Trials specifically are, are referenced here with the date. Um, now there's another thing here too that comes up again and again in the story, and that is angles and geometry and and kind of this, this wall between reality and some other realm, right? So this much is very much a story, even though it's about witches and magic and vernacular traditions and ancient gods and all that, it's, it's, it kind of ranks, it, it ratchets up the cosmic horror by focusing so much on just the weirdness of, of the geometry of things. You know, he's done this before, of course. Relay is described in this way. You see it at the moments of madness, but... It's, it's a little more intimate here because it's in this house. It's in this man-made house, not in these obviously uh, outsider-made dwellings like these other places. Um, and we're told, 
quote, possibly Gillen ought not to have studied so hard. Where it's kind of like, uh, there's a little bit of victim blaming here, I suppose, by the narrator. But he's into Euclidean calculus and quantum physics and this and folklore. So he's into these, this mix. And this mix, I don't think we've seen it before. We've seen a lot of people attracted to folklore and attracted to magic and the occult. That's a common enough Lovecraft trope. But here we have a character who's actually investigating and studying science, new science and mathematics. And so, the, you know, these one, they, they feed off each other in Gilman's mind. And, you know, the, the mathematical speculation gets him to think more about the folklore and the magic and the magic gets him and the things that happen to him make him think more about the, the quantum mechanics. I think it's really, really well done here. Uh, that combination. This idea of like how madness and science go together um, kind of knowledge being a bit of a gatekeeper is, is certainly suggested here too. Um, you know, the professors notice he's getting a little bit weird, but you know, professors, they got bigger things to worry about than one individual student. Um, you know, they basically say, well, slow down your studies, don't go nuts, but, but he continues to especially explore in his part-time when he has the moments, the folklore, the occult. And we find out later on, he's, he also reads the Necronomicon. Everyone who shouldn't be reading these books reads it. I, I think it comes up in almost every late Lovecraft story as something a major character has read. Uh, Walter Gilman is no different. Now, because of this, he chooses. He chooses to live in the witch house. It's not that it's the only place he can afford, right? We, we've seen houses like this before that have a history, like in the Shunned House. But there, no one would rent it because, or if they stayed, they'd just stay for a while. Gilman actually has a curiosity about this. Quote, he knew his room was in the old witch house, that indeed that's why he had taken it. There was much in the Essex County records about Kazaya Mason's trial and what she had admitted under pressure to the court of Oyer and Terminator had fascinated Gilman beyond all reason. She had told Judge Haythorn of lines and curves that could be made to point out directions leading through the walls of space to other space beyond. beyond. It had implied that such lines and curves were frequently used in certain midnight meetings in the dark valley of the White Stones beyond Meadow Hill and on the unpeopled island of the river. She had also spoken of the black man, of her oath, and of her new secret name of Nahab. Then she had drawn these devices on the walls of her cell and vanished. Now, these are all important points, like the geography here. Meadow Hill, especially this island, these become sites that attract him and drive him to seek them out. Um, but the whole idea that there's this just unpeopled island in the middle of the Miskatonic River that's in the center of Arkham that no one dares go to because of its history. It's such a creepy, um, you know, I guess, I guess a lot of towns have these kinds of, you know, island, river islands, you know, running through them. But, the, you know, there might be people living there, but this is just a, a shunned island uh, because of its history. Now we get the mention of the black man who it's implied later on is Nile Opatep that she's somehow in cahoots with. Um, and then she's, she's given an oath. This oath is most likely to Asathoth because um, later on we hear Gilman being told he should make a, a, a pledge, to uh, an oath to Asathoth. And he gets a secret name. She gets a secret name. And I think Gilman also is, is offered a secret name at some point. So these are, these are all important points. This is a very dense test, text. There's almost nothing that can be excised without, I think, sacrificing some of the story. Um, um, 
the house also kind of has an ongoing life. We're told in the like 200 years since, because uh, I Mason had lived there. Um, you know, strange sounds on certain holidays like May Eve and Hallow Mass. I, I love how Lovecraft makes use of these kind of holidays that no one cares about anymore. These old uh, like pagan holidays or early Christian holidays. Bring them back. And, and here it's a couple. It's um, Walpurgis Night, which we'll talk about later. And, um, and just to mention here of Hallow Mass, which is October 31st. Um, and May Eve, which is April 30th, right? The day before May Day. And May Day has its own kind of festivals and, and rituals. I don't, I've never really, outside of the story, heard of what that is. Um, but if you're interested, there's a great book about May Day by Peter Leinbaugh, which investigates the cultural and political significance of May Day throughout American history. Um, and once again, you know, this is connected to modern science, at least through Gilman's imagination. A room was easy to secure. This is in the witch house. A room was easy to secure for the house was unpopular, hard to rent, and long given over to cheap lodgings. Gilman could not have told what he expected to find there, but he knew he wanted to be in the building where some circumstances more or less suddenly gave given a mediocre old woman of the 17th century an insight into mathematical depths beyond the utmost modern delvings of Planck, Heisenberg, Einstein, and De Sitter. Um, all important figures in the in modern physics, right? So Gilman's interest in the occult is tied once again directly to new physics, and he begins to study the house when he lives there. At first, nothing happens. At first, it's just a normal place. He's got this landlord. There's like uh, someone living on the other floor, um, and we get this description of the house. Um, but the shapes are. I mean, first, nothing really too weird happens to, to Gilman. In fact, we see events build up towards, uh, towards that May Eve. And, well, well actually, Walpurgis Night is May Eve. <laughs> so, um, so April, a lot of the events in the story take place in April in the build up to this Walpurgis Night. Um, but yeah, I think that's what, like this, what's really, I think, amazing about the early part of the story is how Lovecraft connects his interest in astronomy and um, math and new science into his fascinations about witchcraft. And it's, a, it's just a wonderful idea, too, that, you know, kind of in almost in a science fiction sense that witches were uh, kind of in a science fiction literature sense, you know, the, to imagine witches as just people who had an understanding of, of new physics, right? And were able to somehow, you know, use that knowledge as a source of power. Right, maybe I'm sure someone's played with this idea in other ways in, in other fiction. Um, it's good. Uh, quote: For he began to read into the old angles, the odd angles in the in the building. Right, a mathematical significance which seemed to offer vague clues regarding their purpose. Old Keziah, he reflected, might have had excellent reasons for living in a room with peculiar angles, for it was not through certain angles that she claimed to have gone outside the boundaries of the world to space. We know. End quote. So somehow the geometry of the buildings creates portals for her ability to move around and travel. And as we'll see, possibly an ability to, to essentially be immortal. Um, now, uh, not before too long, he starts to be affected in his st studies. So the first half of the story has a lot of this 
issue of it, like his studies being sacrificed for his curiosity and his his various pursuits. Um, he starts to hear sounds. His curiosity, his studies of his room, just distract from his his orbital studies. But eventually, things start happening, and what they are are first are just sounds. But really, so much of the first part of the story takes place in Gilman's dreams, and he has some really wonderfully vibrant dreams. Um, he dreams of Keziah Mason. He dreams of her familiar Brown Jenkins, which is just a, such a nasty, vicious-sounding uh, figure. And he, he does some pretty nasty stuff later by the end of the story. Pretty gruesome stuff. This is one of his more gruesome tales, actually. Um, the object, no larger than a good-sized rat, and quaintly called by the townspeople Brown Jenkins, seemed to have been the fruit of a remarkable case of sympathetic herd delusion for an 1692, no less than 11 people had testified to glimpsing it. There were recent rumors, too, with the baffling and disconcerting amount of agreement. Witnesses said it had long hair in the shape of a rat, but that its sharp-toothed, bearded face was evilly human while its paws were like tiny human hands. It took messages between its Olka's eye and the devil, and it was nursed on the witch's blood, which it sucked like a vampire. It's some kind of... It's just her familiar, but it's sort of a demon. You know, angels, of course, are the conveyor of messages between God and humanity, right? That's their kind of theological function. Largely, they send prayers up, and of course, they're the ones who, they, you know, it was an angel that did the Annunciation. It's an angel that delivered the Quran to Muhammad, all that. But, I, you know, I guess demons perform the, the alternative function. But, uh, you know, in this case, it seems that it's not the devil so much that she's communicating with, but rather Azathoth. But the mass delusion here is great. It's, it's a wonderful kind of historical tidbit because you do see historical records of these mass delusions. I think there was one in World War One where like, several soldiers claim, claim to have seen, you know, spiritual visions uh, on the battlefield or whatever. You know, it happens. You know, rumors spread and people see what they, they're going to see or interpret it after the fact. I don't know how the skeptics, you know, interpret these things, but... Um, you know, I, I think it's a documented uh, reality that these things happen. Oh yeah, Brown Jenkins, great, a great invention by Lovecraft here. Um, now, but much of this is in his dreams, um, where he sees portals, he sees, uh, he hears sounds, he sees abysses, he sees kind of, uh, he basically dreams bring him closer to this barrier between worlds, right? I, you know, it's kind of like the Thinnies in Stephen King's fiction in a way, right? It's, it's like there are these places in which the boundaries between our world and a, and a greater reality um, are thin, right? So the word King uses in his stories is thinny. It's in the Dark Tower books. Um, that's kind of what's here, but here it's dreams become the way. So this almost qualifies as a dreamland story. It's, it's dreams are so important in this 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 tale, especially uh, I'm pretty much throughout the whole thing. So much happens in dreams that get reflected in our world. It's it's nice. It starts out with little objects that seem to be in dreams, and then they're in reality, and then later on it becomes a means of transport and, and communication and, and all these kinds of things. Um, so in one of these dreams, uh, well, in some of these dreams, he sees objects, in fact, uh, whole cities, and, and, and this allows Lovecraft to hint at his broader mythology, of course. Quote, Gilman sometimes compared the inorganic mass to prisms 
labyrinths, clusters of cubes and planes and cyclopean buildings, and the organic thing struck him variously as groups of bubbles, octopi, centipedes, living Hindu, living Hindu idols, and intricate arabesques rounded in a kind of ophidian animation. Everything he saw was unspeakably menacing and horrible, and whenever one of the organic entities appeared by its motions to be noticing him, he felt a stark hideous fright, which generally jolted him awake. Um, end quote. In other dreams, he sees Brown Jenkins in his room. He sees Mason uh, and all this. And eventually he starts to think, I need to see a doctor because this is driving me nuts. I'm, I'm going crazy, essentially. Um, and there's, you know, Gilman's not totally disbelieving what he's seen, but he certainly, uh, especially when it starts to interfere with his studies, he starts failing classes. Um, calculus D, I don't know what that is. You have to look at what curriculum was in the 1920s and 30s. Advanced General Psychology, which is an interesting class that he decided to take being a math and science student, taking Advanced General Psychology, meaning not general psychology, he's already passed that, he's taking Advanced General Psychology, perhaps to uh, reflect on the occult, uh, his occult interests. Um, but anyways, he starts to see uh, not just Brown Jenkins, but uh, Keziah Mason in his dreams. Um, and he starts to interpret this. He says, now he reflected those nervous fears were being mirrored in his disordered dreams. Right? Um, this kind of the, the boundary between his waking world and his dream world starts to thin a little bit. Um, but he stays in the house. He stays in the house despite it having a bad influence on him because of Curiosity, right? Of course, curiosity. That's what always leads people to dig deeper when they shouldn't. Um, but I get the sense that Gilman much, is much more trapped, right? I don't see really the way out for him. Maybe leaving the witch house, but you see the narrator, and again, this is third-person narration, so uh, it's always saying, like, Gilman was being pulled somewhere. He was being dragged to this... Uh, this hideous island in the middle of the Miskatonic who's being pulled to the ground sometimes. He's being pulled by his dreams. He's being pulled to, to stars, to certain constellations at various times. Like it's um, wherever these boundaries between this broader cosmic reality and his world, he's being drawn to it. So it's, you get the sense he couldn't have avoided the witch house. And maybe it wasn't even his full free will that brought him to the witch house to live in the first place. I want to, uh, to, read, to, to read a couple paragraphs here, so it'll take a little while, but I want, it's important because he starts, Gilman starts to try to work out in his head using modern science and physics, working out interdimensional transport. Um, so he's trying to use his tools, his tools to make sense of it, the same way you imagine maybe, you know, maybe Keziah Mason had some wisdom, right? She must have figured this out at some point, being a witch with magic powers, right? Assuming they're not just born in her. So towards the end of March, so we're about a month out from the end of the story, from the climax. Towards the end of March, he began to pick up his mathematics, though other studies bothered him increasingly. He was gaining an intuitive knack for solving Riemann equations, an astonished professor Upham, by his comprehension of fourth dimensional and other problems which had floored all the rest of the class. One afternoon, there's a discussion of possible freakish curvatures in space and theoretical points of approach or even contact between our parts of the cosmos and various other regions as distant as the farthest stars or the transgalactic gulfs themselves, or even as fabulously remote as the tentatively 
conceivable cosmic units beyond the whole Einsteinian space-time continuum. Gilman's handling of the scene filled everyone with admiration, even though some of his hypothetical illustrations caused an increase in the always plentiful gossip about his nervous and solitary eccentricities. What made the students shake their head was his sober theory that a man might, given mathematical knowledge, admittedly beyond all likelihood of human acquirement, stop deliberately from the earth, step deliberately from the earth to any other celestial body which might lie at one of the infinite of specific points in the cosmic pattern. I guess we don't need to read the second paragraph following this up because it gets into kind of more of the technical aspects of how we think this is possible. How there's like different stages allow you to move through three-dimensional, four-dimensional space, time into um, another moment in space-time. Um, but, you know, it's, it's solid mathematics, it seems, and it's you fun college conversations, right? It's uh, the kind of things people do in college. They're, they have their wild ideas, their crazy historical theory, and maybe in my case, the professors don't quite agree with, but, you know, respect the audacity of students pursuing it. Um, in his case, it's, it's he's trying to justify, I guess, some kind of astral projection or something. Um, now, at this point in the story, he starts to sleepwalk as well. Sleep, son, sonabulism is added to the creepy things that are happening to him um, and adding to his, you know, his sleeping, part, part of his sleeping life. Now, he may have been sleepwalking all along, but it's, it's only at this point that he becomes aware that he's sleepwalking because he's, you know, his clothes are displaced or whatever in the morning. And he starts thinking maybe he should put f actually literally flour on the ground to trace his sleepwalking steps. Um, wild. Um, and eventually he, he does start to investigate his own sleepwalking a little bit more uh, a little bit later in the story. Um, all right. Now, another thing this story does, interesting, is t gets, and we haven't really gotten there yet uh, because we've been focusing so much on Gilman and his experiences in the witch house. And bear in mind, we're only about 10 pages of the story. All this stuff, all this richness is just in the first, like, 25 or a quarter of the story. Um, but we get a whole nother kind of element of the tale uh, at this point in the story when we meet Joe Morozowicz, um, who is um, a religious neighbor. Uh, he has a room on the ground floor of the of the witch house. So this, this house has been turned into, like, condos or turned into various... Uh, you know, different rooms for, for, for boarders. And so he's a neighbor and he's very religious. He's, um, so he's always talking about his, 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 uh, priest. Um, but he's also interested in these special traditions. So we get a sense of like the Arkham residents. That's what I think I like about, well, another thing I like about this story is the Arkham residents are in the forefront it's not just the nautical-looking Negro like we get in uh, the Call of Cthulhu, who knocks off uh, the the main character's you know uncle or whatever. We actually get to know some of these people by name. Um, they're not just background characters, and I, I think this this is the only time I really think this happens. Like the other character, we always meet these professors or librarians or something. Um, yeah, even in the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Anyone who's not like connected to, intimately to Charles Dexter Ward and his family is, is, is sort of a background character. Here we meet some of these neighbors. I, I think that's a, 
maybe that's a development for Lovecraft. I think it makes the story better because you get the sense that these people of Arkham are into weird holidays and religions. Somehow living in this town makes them have a whole different conception of the calendar. Um, so here's, here's what he, we write about this. Joe Mazurowicz. Um, he told long rambling stories about the ghost of old Kazai and the furry shaped sharp fang nuzzling thing and had said he was so badly haunted at times that only a silver, silver crucifix given him for the purpose by Father Awaniki of St. Stanislaus's church could bring him relief. Now he was praying because the witch's Sabbath was drawing near. May Eve was Walpurgis night when hell's darkest evil roamed the earth and all the slaves of Satan gathered for nameless rites and deeds. It was always a very bad time in Arkham. And even though the fine folks up in Miskatonic Avenue and high in Saltonstall streets pretended to know nothing about it, there would be bad doings and a child or two would probably be missing. Wow, I mean, that's so amazing. <laughs> Just, we now get the geography of Arkham. We learn like about class divisions within Arkham and these class divisions shape how they appreciate and understand these traditions. In this case, this is another vernacular tradition carried on by the working class. And the more elite members of Arkham just ignore it's there, even though children, you know, perhaps go missing. Um, great stuff. So anyways, another thing that happens to Gilman is he starts to get fever. So in, in addition to the synabulism, the dreaming, the anxiety, the sounds he's hearing, he starts to get a fever as well. And this drives him to eventually seek out... Um, some medical attention, but he doesn't really pursue it very far. So it's at this part of the story that we start getting the polling. Uh, we, we start to hear, we hear about Gilman being pulled into places. And throughout all this are scattered various other dreams and deeper dreams. And, and oh, there's one, before I get into the polling, uh, there's one really important dream that's mentioned here where he actually is being tempted by Asatoth himself. Uh, so he sees this grinning old woman. It's um, Kaziah, presumably. Her bent back, long nose, and shriveled chin were unmistakable, and her shapeless brown garments were like those he remembered. The expression on her face was one of hideous malevolence and exultation, and when he awakened, he could recall a croaking voice that persuaded and threatened. He must meet the black man and go with him to the throne of Azathoth at the center of the ultimate chaos. This is what she said. He must sign in his own blood the Book of Azatoth and take a new secret name now that his independent delvings had gone so far. What kept him from going with her and Brown Jenkins and the others and the other, the black man, to the throne of chaos where the thin flute piped mindlessly was the fact that he had seen the name Azatoth in the Necronomicon and knew that it stood for primal evil, too horrible for description. Um, so uh, obviously Kaziah Mason did this. She went before the throne of Azathoth. She has a secret name. So it's Nahab. Okay, anyways, that's what I was saying. Uh, around this time, he starts to be pulled in various directions. So in class, he'd be drawn to like empty space in the room and become fascinated with, you know, vac called vacant spots. What Lovecraft writes here is vacant spots, um, which seems to be a real bizarre kind of he starts to think again, it's like a mental problem he's having. And he, you know, he decides he's got to see a nerve specialist, a fancy way of saying a shrink, uh, to help, you know, maybe figure out what's going on with him. And he gets pulled other directions too. Like for instance, sometimes he's getting pulled 
psychically to the desolate island on the Miskatonic River. Um, sometimes he's pulling, eventually he's being pulled to the, well, at one point he's being, or he gets the urge to like jump off a bridge, uh, you know, into, um, you know, to who knows where. And uh, later on, he gets pulled to the sky. And what he realizes happening is there's a particular place in the, in the sky between Hydra and Argo Navis, this constellation that he's being pulled to. But when it's on the other side of when the Earth is turned, you know, he's being pulled in another direction you know, towards that same stars. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I'm going to stop soon because this has been, I'm going on a, quite a while uh, about this. But there's a few more events that I think are kind of important here. Um, Morozo Witch shows up again, um, and I think it's, it's Patriot's Day, so that's April 19th, right? That's celebrating the beginning of the American Revolution, the Battle of Lexington and Concord on April 19th. It's only celebrated these days in Massachusetts. Um, it's my birthday, by the way, um, April 19th. I, have a, I actually have a pretty good birthday because it's... It's not only Patriots Day, it's also, uh, I think the Waco City fire was that day, and the Oklahoma City bombing was also on April 19th, so, so it might be a curse today, I don't know. I don't know. But anyways, he got drunk, you know, celebrating Patriots Day, and he starts to ramble more and more about the house, and Keziah Mason, and Brown Jenkins. So apparently living in there, he's experienced the same kind of stuff, but... Because he's not a, really a seeker, he's not really pursuing it himself. He doesn't, he doesn't get the invitation to the throne of Asathoth. I guess maybe he's not worthy. But he turns instead to religion. And he turns to his priest in prayer to, to kind of survive this, uh, this life he's living in this freakish house. So going back to uh, his dreams, again, much of the first half of the story, much of the whole story is his dreams. Um, there's a really notable one here, and this is how I'll kind of wrap up this, this episode, which will take us to about halfway through the story, because it's a, it's a nice moment to, I think, cut it off. Um, he has a dream, and he sees a little statuette of a, well, what we know is an elder thing. The, the same features and creature, you know, the kind of thing we saw in At the Moments of Madness, the elder thing. Uh, he, of course, Gilman doesn't know, and our narrator doesn't seem to know, because he doesn't say, oh, he saw an elder thing. He just describes what he saw. Um, so, quote, they, like the whole balustrade, actually, it's like a, it's this piece of furniture, right? And on the top of it is the, is this statue. So it seemed to be made of some sort of shiny metal whose color cannot be guessed in this chaos of mixed effulgences, effulgences and their nature utterly defied conjecture. They represented some ridged barrel-shaped object with thin horizontal arms radiating spoke-like from a central ring and with vertical knobs or bulbs projecting from the head or the base of the barrel. Each of these knobs was the hub of a system of five long, flat, triangular tapering arms arranged around it like the arms of a starfish, nearly horizontal, but curving slightly away from the central barrel. Blah, blah, blah. The figure was four and a half inches in height, while the sticky arms gave them a diameter of about two and a half inches. It's a really small thing. But he, he also, in this same dream, looks down over a balustrade and sees like a, one of these Cyclopean cities. I don't know if it's the city of the elder things he's seen. I, I guess it is. That's my, my guess. Um, but he wakes and um, 
you know, the next day he's drawn to the Desolate Island. He even thinks about Innsmouth, weirdly enough. Some, some of this may just be Lovecraft, again, trying to build a, a broader cosmology, uh, a broader um, world here by connecting these stories together. So we get a mention of how the people of Arkham don't want to go to Innsmouth. But it's, um, you know, he tries to escape. He tries some escapism. And he's like, sort of like a wonder little vignette of like modern culture. And when he tries to go to the movies, he tries killing time at a cinema show. Uh, and he goes to see the same show over and over again because he doesn't want to sleep. He doesn't want to go back to the house. He just wants to waste some time because it's the only way he can get his mind off these things. Um, but he finally goes home and Mora Witz is like freaking out and praying once again. Um, and what he sees on his, I guess this is a nightstand, somewhere in his room is that same statue, right, um, in real life. So this thing from the dream carried over. And he investigates this and he finds out, he asks like the landlord about it and it turns out like the cleaning lady found it. Um, yeah, it was the, oh no, sorry, it wasn't the queen, it was the landlord's wife. Um, but he said the wife had found a funny tin thing in one of the beds when she fixed the rooms at noon, and maybe that was it. So I guess she is sort of the cleaning lady, but she's the wife of the landlord. And she saw it like in the bed, and then she's like, what's this, and put it on the desk. Um, and so we see the transferring of something from the dreams to reality, and that's going to be an important element in the, in the rest of the story. So anyways, that's going to be it for uh, now. We're about halfway through uh, The Dreams in the Witch House. And we'll finish it up in the next episode um, where it gets even weirder. Uh, so just to sum up, I love this story. I, I think it's becoming one of my favorite um, H.P. Lovecraft stories. Um, and so if you haven't read it or you skipped over it or you didn't give it a lot of concern, I, I recommend checking it out. Um, I'll give my final thoughts about the story in the next episode. So anyways, uh, as always, uh, you can reach me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter, uh, EvanLampy1. Uh, you can leave a comment on this podcast feed, or uh, you can go to iTunes and leave a review there. That's just one of the several ways you can reach me. Or those are just some of the several ways you can reach me. So anyways, uh, that's going to be it for now. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. It breaks my heart to see you day after day turning away as much as to stay.